welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This is Art Guide's very first podcast and we're so thrilled our first foray into podcasting is with Chinese-Australian artist Lindy Lee. Exhibiting since the 1980s, Lee is a painter whose works bring together so many intriguing and complex ideas. On the one hand, her art is informed by the Eastern philosophies and teachings of Taoism and Buddhism. Yet she also explores the idea of the self and identity through her Chinese heritage and the experience of growing up in Australia. Initially exhibiting photocopied Renaissance portraits, Lee's practice later began to include family photographs as she sought to question ideas of cultural authenticity. More recently, Lee's practice has extended to installation and sculptural forms, particularly through use of bronze and metal. Yet her interest in questions of being, materiality, identity and heritage still persist. In the following interview, Lindy talks about her Chinese heritage and the influence this has had upon her work. We also discuss how Lee began to create work that both questions and affirms her identity, while also delving into larger questions around the notion of being. And finally, we talk about her upcoming exhibition, The Seamless Tomb, at Sullivan and Strumpf. I'd like to start where I imagine many conversations about your work start, with your Chinese heritage. I know you were born as the white Australia policy was coming to an end and that your family migrated to Australia under this policy. How do you now see these early experiences and your family's migration from China to Australia as influencing your art? Oh, I think that's a really important and central question. Um, as I've, I'm often fond of, I think, quoting, like, could be Jung, um, everything repressed returns as fate. And that's kind of the, um, it's the thematic of my life, really. And, and it comes out of the situation where my parents had actually had a very uh, traumatic and difficult time post-World War Two then Dad coming to Australia and then Mum being left behind uh, with uh, their two sons. And, you know, it was an indefinite period of separation at that time because of white Australia and because of Chinese revolution. Uh, they, they never spoke of that um, particularly because I think they wanted to shield their children from that. But the thing is that with... Um, with people or generations that undergo trauma. So we're talking about a whole generation here and generations of people globally because it was at such a difficult time in the world. Often these, these feelings are repressed in order to get on with life and that's fair enough. But everything that's repressed, as I said, returns as fate. So all of those unspoken things became question marks that were that became deeply buried into my soul and I found myself um, trying to resolve uh, a lot of these unspoken issues. And I, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's curious. The harder you don't, you don't speak about these things, the more palpable it is in the next generation. The next generation has an obligation to heal whatever wounds went on before them. All the questions of identity, which are, are not unusual questions, but they're, they're also tied in with um, a lot of repressed pain that my parents and their generation felt around war, around racism, around uh, dislocation and alienation. 
I feel that in your art you've often sought to reclaim a sense of family and personal heritage through various works, particularly when you started to include family photographs during the 1990s. And now I wonder, is this a somewhat cathartic process for you? Yeah, look, it was very cathartic, actually. Um, And I hadn't even realised, because you don't realise human beings are extraordinary. Uh, We have this incredible capacity to kind of exile that which is difficult inside us. The harder you exile, the harder, you know, it it begins to control your life anyway in in hidden and unseen things. So I hadn't realised just how important uh, my family work was for me until there was an incident when I was in uh, Beijing and it was the 30th anniversary of China-Australian relationship. And so I was uh, participating in an exhibition called Process Journey, which celebrated that connection between Australia and China. And so I did a, a large installation of family banners and portraits in the courtyard. And one of the prominent um, images was of my grandmother, who I never met because she died in China. Actually, the very month I was born, um, when my mother had was in Australia. Anyway, um, she she died. Uh, she'd been imprisoned by the communists. Um, she'd been released, but she had pneumonia, and because she was uh, regarded as well, they had the family had been wealthy at at one point, but you know, after war and after revolution, there was no money. But they were still stigmatised with um, the thought that they had been wealthy. So she was uh, she was very ill, but nobody was allowed to go and be with her and take care of her. So she died, and she, she actually died alone. And um, my mother found out about that, and um, that caused her an enormous amount of grief. And again, she never spoke of it, but I feel as if I felt it even when I was in her womb because as she was carrying me um, or when she was giving birth to me, as happened, uh, her mother died. So anyway, just getting back to that portrait of my grandmother, it was a marvellous thing that all the Chinese Red Guards working at the embassy all came and touched my grandmother's face and said what a beautiful woman she was. And I wasn't prepared for, for <laughs> this torrent of tears that you know, because what had happened essentially in that moment, in that exhibition and in these Red Guards action was, first up, I'd uh, placed my family in the heart of Australia in an embassy that was in the heart of China. And so there was this amazing sense of healing in that moment when I realised what had happened. That felt fairly emotional. But when the guards actually stroked my grandmother's face and I realised that these were the very uh, category of people who in fact had killed her back in 1954. It was incredibly moving that such a full circle had come around and in that moment it just, um, I felt, I actually felt the family work was complete. I still continued to do that work but there was just a sense of wholeness and a sense at last um, some ghosts could be laid to rest. You once said that your initial impetus to become an artist was part of an impulse to be accepted or to belong and to be seen as less Chinese. While this changed over time, I wonder if there was a big moment or an epiphany when you decided that you wanted to start making art that related to your Chinese heritage. Yeah, that's a beautiful question. And it's beautiful because, yes, I started out in denial. 
but this this other you know curious you know in this journey you you know when you face the question um as honestly as possible you find that the answer or the the your heart response is actually different to what you had intellectually thought now i i started my um you know my early career using works from uh, western art history and i thought i was just being clever and postmodern but when i really thought about it and interrogated it properly and why this this compulsion was there i began to realize it was about a sense of belonging then i began to question well what is this belongingness and I realized that I was trying to declare that I was more Western than anything else. And the moment I actually realized that, I realized that anybody who has to declare what they are um, actually doesn't belong in, in, you know, in the way that they thought. Because if you belong, you never even question it. It's just, it's just there. You, you take it for granted. And as soon as I realized that, in fact, that this question of, of identity anyway at that early stage and trying to state what my identity was in the very uh, moment when I realized why I was doing it, it transformed into something else. It, it transformed, it, it, I was allowed to go more deeply into that question. And that's what actually has happened all through my creative life. I think I have an idea about what it's about, but the moment you really uh, face that, and really embody what you think it's about, you realise that there are dimensions that you haven't even looked at, that those dimensions are not available to you until you put yourself wholeheartedly in that place you need to be to ask those questions. I think it's important to say that while we talk about identity, the concept of being is perhaps even more pivotal to your work, and there's a distinct difference between the two. Can you talk about what the idea of being means to you and how it manifests in your art? Being is this it's such a it's such a profound question and I'm just trying to Okay, so I'll go to Heraclitus I'm a bit tired today, so Heraclitus. Okay, you know, the guy who said you you never step into the same stream twice. Okay. So that's being, but the thing is, is that not only do you not step into the same stream twice, but the, but the being who steps into that same stream once, twice or whatever is also not the same. So being is actually, uh, is a really important, not even thing to understand, but absolutely to be with. And that's what it's about, you know, that's the, that's where it comes from, to be with, to be just this, to be, and to be with whatever it is, actually is an agreement to be with impermanence and change, because that's what we are too. So I think that, uh, you know, one of my favourite Zen philosophers, Dogen, uh, Japanese, um, 13th century, he said, um, to study the self is to forget the self but to be authenticated by the 10,000 things, meaning that forget all the constructs that you have about who and what you are because they're only partial. What you are is this constant engagement with life and you are the, the, the nodal point, you're the nexus 
of a constellation of relationships that form everything that you are and then collapses and changes and changes and changes. So that's that's being to me. So that's the 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 respect for um, that's we, we need to generate a kind of respect for being, and also just to enlarge on that point, um, if you if you accept that uh, we are um, beings of impermanence, it means that time is fabric to our existence. We can't step outside of time. We are the enactment of time. And if we broaden that even further, that um, the, one, the, the greatest universe, the greatest principle in the universe is of change, then what the fruit of change is diversity and difference. And I think really right now we have to remember that, that diversity and difference is is a fruit um, is the fruit of time, and uh, I wish that we could understand that more deeply and connect with that more deeply because there's a lot of uh destructive ideology that's hanging about at this moment that denies diversity and change as being fundamental to our nature. And as you just touched upon, your interest in Zen Buddhism as well as ideas around being clearly play into your work. But I feel like when it comes down to it, so much of your art is an exploration into materiality, or better put, how your interest in spirituality is always a material exploration. Can you talk about this? Yeah, it must be. It's not in my head. Um, and, and, you know, it, it starts from my body anybody, your body, you, you know, our bodies um, are the only thing through which we can experience our lives. So that's the first materiality is body. You know, I, everything that I am, everything that I've experienced, felt, is only, can only be felt through this material called my body. Then it extends out to the materiality of the world. And materiality, um, materials have different qualities and materials have different associative meanings because the longer we live, uh, the more experiences we um, accrue. Materials and colour become lined with meaning. So materiality becomes very important. And again, you know, it is this... um, to me, in the much in the big sense, in the sort of sense of cosmos, materiality, um, matter, and spirit are intimately linked. So, when you're creating art, then how do these investigations get played out formally for you? And for instance, I understand your upcoming show at Sullivan and Strumpf spans works on paper, installation, and sculpture. The short answer to that question is that that you know the the works, all of the works in this. Uh, exhibition are engaged with a uh, materiality of some kind, and that could be paper, bronze, or stainless steel. In most of the works, um, there's an in, there's a very strong shadow element of light and light and dark um, matter, and a kind of evanescent light. So, for instance, sometimes 
my work throws strong shadows against the wall. And it's actually the shadow, the immateriality of that shadow and the intangibility of that shadow that gives life to the sculpture. But that shadow can't actually exist except for the solid forms that I've created as well within the sculpture. So in these works, in this exhibition, I feel that matter and spirit, the visible and the invisible, are connected to give the feeling life of the work. And linking in with that, I'm also interested in the title of the show, The Seamless Tomb. Can you talk through what the tomb means in Zen Buddhism and why you're evoking this? Yeah, <laughs> it's one of my favourite koans. And um, so you're, you're, you're meant to, in The Seamless Tomb, you're meant to um, imagine that you have been sealed in a tomb and that tomb is is so perfectly constructed that not one chink of light will ever get in and you are sealed there forever. And, you know, Zen is always about, well, you know, where is your freedom? The, the, the constant question in your life actually becomes, well, where is my freedom in this? So when you imagine yourself to be trapped in this, this seamless tomb, where's your freedom? How do you become free? There is a there is a formal and traditional answer to that question, which I'm not going to give, because um, each person has to work it out for themselves. I was going to say that was going to be my next question as well. <laughs> <laughs> However, I can talk around it. Okay, so one you know one aspect is that oh. I'm going to swear, oh, fucking hell, I am so trapped, I cannot get out, you know, and that that's a really good response. But there's also this thing too, in another way also, where the cosmos is this tomb as well. When you really look, when you know, there are times in your moment when you feel so constricted because something has happened and it's very painful. You know, it could be grief, or well, generally it's grief or anger or something, then we feel trapped in that. But the obverse of that also is by virtue of interconnection. If you, I'm looking around me, you know, I'm in this room, I'm talking to you. So, you know, these moments of connection, when you really think about it, they extend beyond me and you, include you and me. And so this tomb is also vast. So the seamless tomb, this exhibition is a kind of uh, response to actually 25 years of Zen practice and living in the seamless tomb. In the exhibition, you work with only one image, which is a photo of your mother and father with your eldest brother, and you say it represents a seminal moment in your family's history. Can you talk about this moment and why it's the only image you've chosen? Well, first of all, I've I've pondered this image for a very long time, but I never found the right moment to use it. Most of the work in this show is non-figurative, and they're sort of non-figurative expressions of um, cosmos. But you know, everything everything that human life experiences comes well through our own experience. Um, our understanding of everything comes through very singular moments um, and important moments and pivotal moments. And I wanted to ground the entire show just in this one image. And this one image is, um, it's got my mum and my dad, my oldest brother, um, and my mother's younger sister. 
and they're, they're all walking towards the camera. My mother is actually pregnant with um, her, her second child, and that will be my second oldest brother. So they're all walking to the, to the, but the, the poignancy of this moment is this is my dad's last day in China. He is about to step on a boat and come to Australia. My mum is pregnant. Um, she's going to give birth to their child, um, and she doesn't know when she's, she's going to see her husband again, if ever. So in that moment, um, it, you know, in terms of my, you know, it changed, that particular action of my father changes the entire history of my family or the, the trajectory of my family. It, it's a moment that is so fraught with um, anxiety, um, uncertainty, uh, and yet there is hope also because nobody leaves, you know, because, you know, a, a migrant story is really one of hope, trying to find something better. And that, to me, is also, you know, part of what you know, what happens in this seamless tomb. Now, I have one final question, and I promise that I'll let you go, but I remember seeing your exhibition at UQ Art Museum three years ago, which I believe was your last major solo show, and I still remember being so completely moved by your work and the way you talked about it. So I wonder what artists and works have moved you, and perhaps an even harder question, but what is it that we're being moved by when these moments happen? Look, there are so many artists I really love, but, it, but I guess you're talking about really seminal moments where um, I I had an experience a few years ago. Um, so I've been to the Venice Biennale and I saw lots of stuff and, you know, lots of stuff was very interesting and lots of stuff was incredibly dull as well. But I remember coming to see, uh, you know, some Damien Hirst work and it was his pharmaceutical series and I was sort of like just intellectually interested in it. And, you know, it, it sort of, an aspect of it was to talk about, um, well, if it, talk, if it was pharmaceutical, it was about pain and suffering, but it was kind of abstracted. Uh, anyway, I took a train to Florence um, and just for a couple of days to go and meet up with some friends. And I went to the Duomo Museum and there, there's a Michelangelo there. And I think it's the Bandino Pieta. Uh, I'd have to check the name of it. And I remember being moved to tears by that. And it's not his famous Pieta. It's a very roughly hewn, um, unfinished sculpture. And I couldn't help but contrast the difference between the Damien Hirst um, work and how I felt in front of this Michelangelo, where the anguish of uh, loss and grief was so palpable on the Madonna's face. It was roughly finished. It, it hadn't, um, you know, like I said, it's not his most famous work. But it was a miracle. It, it, it remains a miracle to me that any work, a static work, can contain and evoke so much feeling and so much, you know, like... All I can say is empathy. I just, 
uh, I couldn't help the tears that arose because uh, whatever Michelangelo had felt around this was palpable and it's just weird the way that, uh, you know, a dead, a so-called dead piece of stone can be so intense in, in giving you so much um, emotional response. And that was artist Lindy Lee discussing her art practice, her Chinese heritage, and the thoughts and processes that influence her work. You can catch Lindy Lee's exhibition, The Seamless Tomb, at Sullivan and Strumpf from the 22nd of September to the 14th of October. We hope you've enjoyed the first Art Guide Australia podcast and stay tuned for more in the future.